to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. I know I say I'm always thrilled by who my guests are, but this week I must say I am utterly thrilled. This is something that we've been talking about doing for a long time, and it's with someone who I am incredibly fond of and proud of, if that's not patronising to say, Nabil Alifi. Welcome. Thank you, Fiona. I'm so happy to be here. I know we've been talking about this for, I want to say, two years. Ever since, well, I've known you for several years now since I was at Selfridges, but you know, we said one day we've got to record a podcast and this feels like the perfect moment of inflection. Perfect moment of inflection. So just to fill people in, your latest role has been creative director at Soho House, which I know you won't say, but I know the things that you've done have been widely recognised there. And we'll talk a bit more about that. We met when you were at Selfridges, but you're currently taking a bit of time to think through your next stint, as it were, in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we met, we met when I was a fashion director at Selfridges and, and that was, that. you know what, you came into my life at the perfect time because, you know, I needed, I needed a sounding board for sure. Um, but, but you were so good at playing back what was already in my head um, and, and articulating that to a, to a degree that I couldn't have done um, on my own. And then when I moved to So House, um, again, that was a big step, right? Uh, that was just before the pandemic. And I remember we spoke about, right, is this the right move? Is this not the right move? Um, and I found that really helpful. And now we're here again at this at this crossroad um, where I've decided to take a break. Because I, I don't remember having, having had sort of a, a, a a break like this, you know, since I've started, since I've started working. And even before that, it's always been run, 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 run. Um, and, and I'm really pleased to be at this place right now and, 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 you know, figuring out what next. Um, and it really has been run, 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 run. I mean, I'm thinking back because obviously I know, I know your story um, in depth and I can't think of a time that you've ever had a break or a chance to sort of it's almost like you've been swimming and swimming 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 across the the channel and you finally you know you've got a life boy there you can put your hand on it sit up take a breath before you go the rest of the way and you're very young still you've achieved um, <laughs> Thank you <laughs> well, well, I mean, everyone is compared to me. Um, but no, seriously, you're very young and you've achieved. I mean, actually, you're the youngest person I coach and you've achieved masses in a short period of time. There has been a huge level of intensity. And I imagine that you will go forward with that level of intensity, too. And this is and just precisely sort of- why I need to take this break, you know, and, and you know, in hindsight, I'm thinking, you know, what, what, why do I have this? sort of nagging feeling that I need to do something different, that I need to meet the moment as it were. Um, we've gone through so much, all of us, right? And and I speak for myself, I speak for the people that I work with, the teams that I lead, through COVID, through you know, all of the things that we've been through, you know, regardless of which organization you're a part of in the last two years, it's quite easy to sweep that under the rug and say, okay, business as usual. Right. In the thick of COVID, we said, all right, this is an opportunity for us to rethink, reset, unlearn some of the things that we want to do, you know, differently. But 
once everyone got back to the office, it felt like, oh, we're just picking it up where we left off. And I didn't want that for myself because I think at the back of my mind, I knew that if I had gone at this pace, I would have burnt out. And, you know, that's always the cautionary tale, right? I think it's so kind of you to say, right, I've achieved masters. It doesn't feel like that. You know, I, I turned 31 two days ago. And, and I, I felt, you know what, if I could theme the last 10 years and then use that to inform what the next 10 years will be, then I will be able to do what I have to do with more intent. Um, you know, it's interesting. We'll, we'll probably get into this in, in a bit. And you talk a lot about role modeling. And one of the benefits of, of, of having role models in, in your career is that you get to live your career in, 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 a, in a reverse engineered sort of way. You say, okay, if you have, I don't know, 50 years of, of, of work life, how do you want to make the most of that time? How can you pace yourself, most importantly, so that you are, you know, you're, you're, you're peaking at absolutely the right, the right time? Uh, when you have the most to give. That's really interesting because a, a lot of what I do in coaching with you and with other people is the piece around, yeah, we all, we all know a lot of this stuff. When we see things written on, on Instagram, you know, we see those things and we think, yeah, we, we know that. But putting it into practice is a very different thing. And knowing your own level of homeostasis is absolutely critical. And it's working out when are you depleted in one area and when are you need when do you need to give more in another. And if we haven't got an awareness of that, we do burn out or mm-hmm. we make decisions that aren't optimal for us. And that doesn't necessarily mean for the company that we're working for, but for yeah. us personally. So given given we're talking about all these things, I think it'd be useful to explain a bit more or tell a bit more of your story. So you didn't grow up in the UK. No. Tell us a bit about where you grew up and what life was like for you when you were younger. Yeah. So I I am Singaporean, um, born and raised. Um, I lived there till I was the age of 20. Um, The last two years I was in Singapore, I was actually serving national service, um, which meant that I was in the military, doing it properly. I was a platoon sergeant, I trained in the jungles and all that. A, a far cry from, from, from what I do now. And when I tell people they can't believe it, which I quite like. Um, but that was my background. And, and you know, growing up in Singapore, it's, it's a small island. You know, it, it's a very dense island. You know, there are opportunities, but, you know, it's always, people are always competing, you know, directly or indirectly. And especially within the creative field, and I, I grew up in quite a traditional sort of academic sort of route, if you will. You know, you you study very hard to get those scholarships that will take you, you know, to, to the Ivy League, and then you go back, possibly work for the government, and it's it's very that, and and that's all I've known um, growing up. You know, the height of success is either. You know, it's become a bit of a cliche now, doctor, lawyer, engineer, but specifically, you know, to to have those professional quote unquote jobs and serve your country, if you will. But I always thought that I needed to do something a bit more creatively. Um, and I saw that there there wasn't 
that many, you know, opportunity in Singapore. So I started thinking about, okay, what's my, what's my ticket out when I was 15, when I decided, okay, I have to specialize because this is an, an incredibly competitive environment. And I, I remember at that point, we, we, we started taking economics class and like, oh, competitive advantage, right? How do I apply this to myself? What's my competitive edge? You know, what's my, you know, if you will, God-given talent that I can hone and, and be the best at? Um, and I said, okay, that's creativity. But that came with, 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 with you know, challenges. Um, I wasn't out. And then we'll talk about sexuality and how all of that manifested. I, I you know, doing something creative is a step towards, you know, owning up to being gay. Let's put it that way. I know it's a bit far-fetched, but at 15, that's what it felt like. Because I think, I mean, I think at 15, so if we leave sexuality out of it for the moment, that's a massive, massive part of who we are and our identity. But you were pushing against the norm. You were bright academically. So it's not like there weren't options for you academically, but you were pushing against the norm to at that point think, I am creative and that's what fuels me. How did you come to that realisation that you were creative? Well, I've always, you know, I was, I was doing theatre. I was, well, growing up, I would, uh, I'm, the, I'm the guy who would, who would stay back sewing things or painting or whatever it might be. It's always a creative pursuit. It was always about, you know, expression. And it's definitely not football. It's definitely not playing with the Lego set and, and I'm picking it. That, that, that was my brother. And I guess at that point, I thought, okay, this is what being a creative means because it's definitely not, I didn't have role models then per se. They say, oh, this is a career path. I could make a living out of this. And Singapore back then was the be all and end all for me. I hadn't really traveled elsewhere to see, oh, you could be a creative director, whatever that means. So at 15, you, you have a feeling and you try to manifest as best as possible by eliminating options. And I think that's the hardest thing to do because when you're presented with so many different paths and people telling you, oh, maybe you could do this or maybe you could do that. And you try to apply yourself and you're, you know, half, you're half as decent, which means, oh, this could probably be my career. It, it's very hard for you to then pick the one that you're meant to be doing. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's massively hard at 15. And I look at my eldest daughter, who's 15, and I'm thinking about what you're saying. She's got a work experience coming up. And I think, well, ideally, I would give her a few days in sport and a few days in creative. Uh, But actually, even finding that within the wealth of opportunities in London and being in a a privileged position, because I have probably access to more stuff I don't know where to start so it's a really hard thing at 15 and I think and I've talked to you before about how I was good at science and so there was an expectation that I took science Mm -hmm. even though I loved art and I loved making clothes and designing clothes and and I think what really stands out for me is your ability because I didn't your ability at that age to know yourself that level of self-awareness at that age mm. and also the 
the guts to go against a whole system, because as you've described, the Singaporean system is not set up to say, here are some creative outlets. I think that's a big thing. And that's one of the things that really struck me about you when I first met you. So here's the thing, you know, yes, I think part of it is listening to your gut. And I, I wouldn't give myself the credit of going against an entire system per se, because I experienced failure quite early on and, and, and failure that, that, that felt quite catastrophic at that point. So I had been a straight A student all the way till um, my prelims, which is the exam you take just before A levels. And this is, this is like the Super Bowl of all exams, right? Because this determines, you know, do you get that president scholarship? Do you, do you get a place at, 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 I don't know, Yale or whatever? And I had, I thought I had done everything right. And I, and I had the grades at prelims and I thought, okay, you know what, this is going to be a show in. And when I got my A-levels back, I had failed two of the subjects that I'm, I'm meant to be pretty all right at, which is economics and maths. And it's not like I've, it's not like I got a B or a C or, or, or a D or whatever. I got an E, which is the lowest grade you could, or the second lowest grade that you could possibly get. And I've never gotten this ever in my sort of school life. And that was, at that point, I thought, wow, this is it. This is it. Like, let's not even talk about, do I want to take the creative route or do I want to, you know, all that. You know, and you realize back then, you know, at that point, wow, I was so privileged to have so many options, <laughs> you know, and now I have none. And... Another blessing was that I had two years to figure it out because I had to I had to serve in the army. So that was when I started to plan and really, really apply myself. You know, away from the option paralysis, I get to see, okay, what am I actually really, really good at? And when it boiled down to it, I had applied to art school or specifically London College of Fashion. And in the background, I still applied via um, special entry to the local university. So National University of Singapore is a very good university. And that was my sort of security blanket so that I had two viable options to then present to my parents. And I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot about education because it was some good part of growing up in Singapore. It was the ultimate sort of currency. I think it's so important. I mean, I've never profiled you. So we haven't been through that in-depth yeah. profile that I go through with some people. But every single profile that myself and my colleagues do, we go back to teenage years yeah. because it not only shapes us, but it informs the decisions we then make. And what's interesting as well is you talking about failure and working with people like surgeons who fulfill that uh, expectation that you've talked about. I did a talk at the Royal College of Surgeons um, on the psychology of failure because they have never failed. Mm -hmm. They have gone in the way, they haven't ever questioned the route. They've gone the way their parents potentially expected them to. They've always got A's. They've then been top of their class in medicine to become a surgeon. How does that come out? Well, it can come out through narcissism. Mm -hmm. It can come out through human error. In, in surgery. And it can come out in a lack of emotional intelligence and understanding of ourselves and others. That, you know, honed your self-reflection further, having what you're calling a failure. It was actually a period of growth for you. It enabled you to incorporate different things into your identity. 
And the failure at that very, very moment when you look at your grades carried with it a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. So I had to get over that. And I got over that the more I felt confident in this path that I'm supposed to take. So, you know, when I realized, oh, actually, you know what? I I have to do a, a creative degree because that those are the only schools that would that will accept me with my with my grades but then i started it, it's freeing it's freeing you're free of the shackles of what you are expected to do and you begin to apply yourself completely do you think yeah, at some level and i've never discussed this with you but do you think at some level that was intentional somewhere in your brain there was a bit of you that said i'm going to screw this up because then I don't get forced down a path I don't want to go down. Maybe, maybe. But at that point, you know, I really wanted to get that scholarship. Yeah. Because the scholarship would mean that I get to spend some time outside of Singapore. And this goes back to the root. The root is I need to, I need to live out my, my true self. And, and, and that, again, the sexuality comes back into the picture. Because the worst case scenario is being trapped in Singapore, but I mean, Singapore is an incredible, is an incredible place to grow up for sure. But as a gay man or a young gay person, it was challenging. It's much better now, but it was, it was really challenging then. And also, I, I imagine the military was challenging from that perspective. You know what's interesting? The, the military was not as challenging as I thought it was going to be from, a, from the perspective of being a queer person, because for me, that was a challenge. Okay, it's a physical challenge, it's a psychological challenge. It was relatively easy because at that point, I had gotten really good at code switching. And this is something we'll talk about in depth, especially when you know I moved to London and, and assimilating. If there were a superpower, I think that would be mine, being able to read the room and then suss out how do I code switch so that I can be a part of this team and I can be effective, which is a big part of theater. And, and I, I spent 10 years, you know, doing theater growing up. And it's always, it always goes back to what is, what is that other person's objective in the room? And how do you match their energy? How do you meet them where, where they are? And again, I think not something that all to your credit, that all people who do theatre would do to the same degree that you do. Of course, people have to read other people, but you are highly emotionally intelligent. So there's an empathy, and but with that empathy comes an ability for metacognition, mm. which you apply so often, I see you applying, is the ability to take a step back from your own thoughts and take a look in. That's really hard. Um, I'm not so great at that. I'm still working on it. So you, if we move on from so the two years in the military, something that challenged you, as you described, physically and psychologically, which you do like a challenge. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, but equally, I think it's a mindset thing, isn't it? Because you could go into that environment and think, oh, my God, this is just so not what I want to do or where I want to be. Um, and not thrive in that environment because of that. So your mindset and your ability to decide how you're going to approach things rather than let them happen to you, mm. I think is a real strength as well. You reflected, you 
tell, tell us what happened next. Well, it gave me the space to think and to, you know, I know it's a bit cheesy, but really to dream. If you don't have anything holding you back and you've got a blank sheet of paper in front of you, how, do, how would you like to do it? And I'd like to think that's what I'm doing now. I'm giving myself that fresh sheet of paper and say, okay, don't be bogged down by your own CV, your own achievements. How can I break everything down so that I don't get hung up by the titles that I've carried or the, the teams that I've led or past successes? Because my fear is that I peak too early. And I feel like if I were to just ride on the coattails of, oh, you know, CCO of, of So House at 28 and had the opportunity to do the IPO and, and all that. And even before that, at Selfridges and Urban Outfitters, I think I would lose that, that sense of self-awareness maybe, and even the fire that led me here. You get comfortable, don't you? You get comfortable when you build these comforts or you, rather you've earned these comforts and you go, actually, there's nothing to run away from anymore. And the last 10 years felt like running. It really felt like running because it felt like until I get to a comfortable point, all of this could go away and I could be that 15-year-old back in Singapore trying to live freely. Yeah. And it came from a place of fear. As someone who knows you, I would say, I don't feel like you're operating from that place of fear now. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Moving forward, that's definitely what I want to not do. You know, how do you move from a place of fear to a place of strength? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get there without having done the work, reflecting of what makes you tick. And very quickly, I had to figure out if I were to replicate the successes that I've enjoyed, I have to know myself. I have to know what drives me and what makes me tick. Because obviously, from a sort of logical perspective, you know what your skill sets are. But I like to think we're actually all quite simple in that we're driven by our very basic impulses. Whether you're chasing that title or that promotion, or it, it always comes from something that's a bit more basic. And for me, in my 20s, that was the fear of going back and having to not live my, my true self. And in my 30s now, I want to be able to not have that weight on my shoulders, but at the same time, channel all that energy into something else. You know, I'm not the, I'm not the youngest person in the room anymore, and, I, and my friends love to remind me that because that, <laughs> that, that used to be my card. And what does that mean? How do you outgrow this identity of having been so lucky to be here as that young person? Because that could work against you in, 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 in many cases when you do eventually get a seat at the table to see yourself as the youngest person in the room, it limits you. You taught me this. You said, but, you know, yeah. No, I've seen you grow through that though. I've seen you, I've seen you quite proudly and quite rightly own that I am the youngest. I mean, that was one of the reasons that because, you know, I get picky about who I coach now because I'm old and I, I shouldn't say I'm old. I'm not old. Um, not. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing it for a long time. And 
when I met you, you know, I was asked to meet you and I was like, oh, it's quite young. And and I met you and I thought, yeah, definitely want to work with you. You're, you're so interesting. But I mean, that was one of the things I was told. He's incredibly young to be in this role. It was something that was assigned to you mm. as part of your identity. And that takes a bit of a shift because you know, we, we get older without noticing um, and suddenly we're not the youngest in the room. But I also had, I, I mean, I, I could empathise with that because in my 20s, I was young for doing what I was doing and I looked very young. And I sort of went through, do I dye my hair? Do I wear glasses? Do I? And it's... Um, it's funny because suddenly you wake up and you're not that person anymore. I, I, I love what you just said about do I dye my hair? Do I wear glasses? Because, which is why I am in fashion. I love fashion because of its power to project what you want to project. And that was my shield. You know, going into a room, I mean, I can't do anything about my face and, and you know, I'm, 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 I'm I come in a small packaging. I can't do anything about that. But what can I do with what I wear? so that I can hold the room. And it has, that has never failed me. And I feel like that's something I've, I've tried to hone to the point where, you know, I always joke about this, you know, my, my most recent boss said, you know, if, if I want to get something signed off from you, I will wear navy because it's a, it's, it's a pretty inoffensive sort of color. Uh, I, I know it's your favorite color. And unknowingly, you already like what I'm saying because I'm not wearing something distracting or something that is against your instinct. So it is, it is a really powerful tool. It's like a passport. And I, I would say this to anyone who feels some sort of imposter syndrome, what you wear can be transformative. It can take you much further. It's not just, you know, wearing something because you want to signal your status or whatever. It really is. If you are able to hone it, a shield and armor. Yeah, a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think there's often the notion that fashion is fickle or mm. it's superficial, but actually there's a lot of meaning behind it and a lot of creativity and there's a lot of psychology behind it because are you wearing what everyone else wears i do even notice that you're wearing what everyone else wears how are you expressing yourself so if we come back to you and fashion you left singapore mm -hmm. what happened next but theater was my first love and i thought hey could i could i make a living out of you know working in theater in singapore yeah there are some amazing playwrights many of them are my friends um, directors, actors in Singapore. They were my first sort of creative community. But but back then I was still quite pragmatic, right? Um, having, wanting to be a scholar, I had to figure out a middle ground that maybe my parents can digest or what I thought people would be, be accepting of. And what I love about fashion is it is culture and commerce. It's artistic, but it has to exist in the market. So for me, those are two areas that I'm super excited about because it's this living, you know, breathing thing. Uh, and it can mean so many different things to different people. So that's when I figured, okay, 
I'm going to do this. And I applied to London College of Fashion because they have a fashion business course, a degree that specializes specifically on this sort of intersection, if you will. And and jumping sort of 10 years ahead, and I was listening to Imran Ahmed's podcast with Jay Shetty. Uh, Imran, as you know, is, is, is the um, CEO and founder of Business of Fashion. And we've become friends. And I was just gobsmacked at how similar our stories, you know, are. He too started in theater and he felt that, I'm paraphrasing, do do listen to his podcast because it's, it's incredible. It's very but good. He felt that he didn't have the privilege to do something like theater because it didn't give him the safety net to make a living should it not work out. And I felt exactly the same. So that was me having to choose something more practical. And then fashion turns out to be the perfect medium and, and you know, the rest, the rest is history. But my first, just skipping ahead, my first job was as an art director at Urban Outfitters. And I was still in university. So I was doing it part-time. Uh, when I graduated, they offered me a full-time role. And by then, they had promoted me to a creative director. And just to go back, university was... London College of Fashion. Yeah. Um, I was doing uh, the fashion management degree. It was great because that was my introduction to London. Um, it's also, it's not, <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, I went to university. But, and I know it wasn't potentially what had been lined up for you as an expectation to no. go to an Ivy League, to go to Yale, to go somewhere like that. But it's many people's beyond many people's wildest dreams to go to London College of Fashion. It's the pinnacle of, well, in my view, <laughs> it's the pinnacle. You're absolutely right. It's an incredible, it's an incredible, you know, university. I, I had, I had an incredible time there. I know I'm being a bit facetious because, you know, you're right. You know, it's, it's an incredible privilege to have that, that education. The people that I met, you know, I, I got to find my tribe at uni. Um, and I guess the reason why I'm not flippant, but for me, oh yeah, it's, it's LCF was because the university experience is so inextricable with the London experience that I struggled to, to remember which was London, which was uni. For me, it was just a whole chunk of really important, it's an important period in, in, in my early twenties that still continue to fuel me now creatively so I'm immensely immensely grateful for that for that experience for sure but it didn't feel like it ever ended I, I feel like I'm still living that <laughs> chapter because the people that I work with with then are still the people that I collaborate with now yeah and an amazing opportunity Urban Outfitters is the first role oh incredible you know it was a I remember it so well it was my commercial boot camp you know, going from being a student to having to be responsible for a small team, that was, yeah, that was zero to a hundred real quick, <laughs> you know, but I had good bosses. You know, someone once told me your first boss is probably the most important person that will shape your career. And, you know, I had the privilege of having a really thoughtful creative leader as my line manager, Stephen Bryars. He 
who was the creative director of Urban Outfitters then. He recruited me and I said to him, you know, when he offered me the job, I said, you, I think you got the wrong guy. I, I'm still in university. I haven't even lived in this city for a while. Are you sure? And said, no, I, I think you, I know you're the, I know you're the guy because this is exactly what this brand needs precisely now. And I didn't appreciate it then, but it was my, the fact that I didn't grow up in London, the fact that all of this is so new to me is what he found fresh. And he wanted that in his creative team. Yeah, and I think he probably saw a bit more than that as well. But Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So a fabulous opportunity, a fabulous experience. How long were you at Urban Outfitters for? And what what would you say were the key highs of sure. your time there? So I was at Urban for four and a half years. Um, and I was part of the European team when I started. And by the end of it, we were a global team. Um, and I got to work with some of the most incredible people because they were living and breathing the brand. It was far-fetched for me to think I would do an art director job then at the age of, what, 20, 22? But now in hindsight, I thought, okay, I agree. This makes sense because urban is all about youth culture. Urban is, and it occupies such a specific space in, in specifically in America, right? You live within miles of an urban outfitters. And I got the opportunity to dream about what that means outside of the US and really help it help shape what urban feels like as a global brand. Um, and at that point, there were some you know, tactical challenges that we had to uh, rise up to, which is you know, making sure that we transform digitally fast enough making sure that our e-commerce business was growing at pace. So that was a great masterclass in terms of taking what I had learned at LCF and seeing it in practice. So like I said, that's why it felt like commercial bootcamp. And then Selfridge is called. And I thought, wow, I have to take this opportunity because this is literally my dream job. Urban prepared me for Selfridges in a huge, huge, huge way. And then at Selfridges, I thought, like, this is all I ever want to do. <laughs> I'm very fond of Selfridges, having worked with them for quite a while. But I think the thing that they do do well is immensely well is the creative and obviously the fashion as well. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things I loved, I'm not sure if it's still the case now because I haven't actually done work with them recently, but it was the creative team was in a different building um, and it preserved an element of well creativity an element of um, freedom to be able to express and to not be as confined or dictated to by a bureaucracies that exist in every single organization that is such a huge huge point how you design your office slash studio really impacts how people feel at work and I learned that when I lead creative teams in that they, have, they need time where they don't have to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, at Selfridges was brilliant. They called it a studio. It's in a separate building. I think if creative people have to come into an office and feel like 
they have to be in their seat by 9 a.m. And at night at 5 p.m., they clock out. It's the equivalent of having to wear a tie to work. Or handcuffs. <laughs> or handcuffs. I mean, do you know you're describing that? And regardless of the fact that I took a psychology slightly more scientific route, I think you know that I hate being confined. And just mm-hmm. the description of nine to five makes me rile because I'm I just push against that and I rebel against that. But I think the point you're making is really interesting because I don't think it applies just for creative people. So some people, yes, they like the structure of a day. They like to know when they start and when they finish. And that's great. And that should be respected. But there are a lot of people in roles that are not creative roles who Mm -hmm. still don't take that time to reflect and to process and to actually to innovate whether that's directly creative or not, everyone needs to learn, assimilate and innovate. I agree. I agree. And and when people feel like they have to be on all the time, ironically, the work suffers. Mm-hmm. It does, <laughs> you, totally. You get less out of the team because they feel, they feel tired at the end of the day because so much of the energy is spent trying to do the right thing or to be seen as doing the right thing rather than actually doing the work. So if you use Selfridges as an example, the studio had a lot of breakout spaces. And yes, it's an open plan office, but you could also go to a nook somewhere and not be disturbed. You know, the thing about open plan offices, I think it's great in terms of creating an open environment where it feels less hierarchical. But actually, sometimes you do want your boss to be in an office so that you can get on with your job. If you have an open plan office where you have your line manager just breathing down your neck, it's quite stressful. Yeah, it doesn't enable, it doesn't enable human potential in effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, You, would you say this is, I don't know if this would be a difficult question or not. Would you say that Selfridges was a highlight in your career more so than your latest role? Um, I think for what I wanted to do, all I ever wanted to do was to work in fashion, right? Um, And with Selfridges, I got to see that done at, at a very, very high level. And I thought, wow, in my head, I have arrived, which is a very rich thing to say at 27. But it gave me that joy. It really did. And and there was nothing more I wanted out of it. But towards the end of of my time at Selfridges, I had this nagging feeling that, okay, am I being complacent? And so our house presented a completely different challenge. You know, it's hospitality, it's membership. Yes, it's a brand that I love because, you know, I I had been a member before I joined So House. And it was, a, it was a leap of faith in many ways. You know, when I sat down with Nick, he put it so simply, I've built this company for 25 years. I need someone else to dream up what the next 25 would be. And just for people listening who don't know who, what Soho House is, because while Soho House is global, it's not, its reach isn't as global as this podcast. Um, and <laughs> Quite it, right. How would you describe Soho House? Well, Soho House is a members club that started you know 27 years ago by a visionary called nick jones and 
you know, in its 27 years, it's called its creative people, its members, you know, people with creative jobs or anyone with some sort of creative pursuit. Oftentimes they are operating at a high level and have impact. So, so whatever they do, they could be, you know, a patron of, of, an, of a certain artist um, and, and, and they would be a Soul House member because that person has something to contribute to this sort of community, if you will. It's an incredible thing. It's, it's something that on paper should not work, but it's living and breathing and it's here. So I view it with incredible admiration and I'm humbled by the challenge that it presents because it doesn't occupy one single space. It's not pure hospitality. It's not media. It's not it's many things. It's, it's brilliant. And I, I remember you being approached for the role and it wasn't something that you automatically were going to jump to. No. You described it with as much admiration and respect then as you do now, but it wasn't necessarily, I mean, one of the things I remember you grappling with was the fact it wasn't fashion because that's where your heart is. And would you be able to bring your whole person to that, mm-hmm. which I saw you doing. Do you feel like you brought your whole self to, to Soho House? Now, 100%. But I do remember that point where I was presented with the opportunity and I wasn't sure for two reasons. One, you're right, that it's a step away from fashion. Um, and I, I was worried that it might be a distraction. Um, I haven't worked for a very long time. So to have something, to have a sidestep might be confusing for me. You know, how do I describe myself? You know, what, what am I? I am I a, a fashion creative director or am I in hospitality? And then the second reason is I wasn't sure if I was up for the job. And, and this really, really manifested that, that imposter syndrome. And I didn't feel that I had the psychological safety. And this is something we use a lot in your coaching to take that leap should it fail. And, I, and that's why I'm so pleased that you came with me to So House. And I think having that connection is really important. You know, wow. and you know, great days and bad days. And when we have those challenging days, you and I talk about why do we do this in the first place? And of course, I was thrilled to come with you. But I think it's interesting. If someone asked me, a venture capitalist actually asked me, what did I see the challenges in coaching to be? And I think with coaching, one thing that's important to do is hold space for that person. And sometimes that person will be in high performance mode and wanting to fine tune the impact that they're having on the environment and the people and other times it's sustaining and it's reflecting and you do have to fulfill all those different roles but I think that's where you use coaching very well because you come to it each time knowing what what you need to explore you don't know necessarily where we'll get to what the answer will be but you know what you want to explore so it was you know, ultimately it was a very strategic decision 
because I remember having this conversation with you and I said, okay, listen, I love fashion. I will get back to fashion at some point. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. What could the industry, what am I seeing in the industry? What changes am I seeing? Could this experience equip me to be effective in that future state of fashion? And this was about 2019, just before the pandemic. And you're already hearing murmurs about um, sub subscription-based businesses. And, and a members club is, in effect, a sub subscription-based business. You know, what, what could that mean for fashion? Um, and now, you know, fast forward, you know, two and a half years, you see brands, you know, luxury brands entering hospitality because it keeps their customers closer to them. Uh, you build a greater sense of, of, of connection, a, a more meaningful relationship. All of that I've learned from being at Soul House and learning from the, the man who's done it for 27 years and doing it so well. You've extended your capabilities in terms of your commercial capabilities and your understanding of working at another level of seniority, going through an IPO, um, working in a completely different industry. And as you say, they they do all pull together and you don't know what that's going to look like next yet, but you know, you're pulling all these strands of your experience and your interests together because you've always talked about commerce and even in your description a minute ago uh, uh, about fashion, what you love about fashion is the combination of culture and commerce. So it was building on that. And it was, it, I mean, it was a tough time, wasn't it? Cause it was, Everyone went through the pandemic. It was tough for different people in different ways, but I do believe it was tough for everyone, as you alluded to earlier on. But to join a new company, I, I felt really felt for people who've joined a new company in that time. And on top of that, a company that relies on people being in the houses, people <laughs> actually being present. That's hard. No, it was, it was a perfect storm. Um, you know, starting at a new company at a senior level, remotely i mean first of all it, it it's a powerful learning right like how do you how do you motivate how do you bring your energy your presence your being through zoom how do you hold people's attention for 16 minutes multiplied by 12 sessions a day <laughs> for an extended period of time because we were working very long hours when we all of us were working during 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 the pandemic um you know for various reasons I think it trains you to be more engaging. It, it also trains you to be concise. What's the essential information that I need to convey? What do I need from the teams? Um, and how do I get them to care about what, what I'm saying? Because it was a very interesting time for anyone who was, who was working at that point, because this was at the you know, at the, at, at the dawn of the great resignation, where people were, were asking themselves, is this worth it? Is being on Zoom for, you know, 12 hours worth it? Am I doing the right thing? So it present, you know, COVID presented, uh, you know, amongst many, many, many other things, huge leadership challenges. Specifically, you know, in my experience with creatives, we can just, you know, do something completely different. They could decide, actually, you know what, I'm going to take the year to reflect and, and recalibrate. So retention was a, was a big challenge. So 
huge leadership challenges, huge challenges with creative. What do you feel like you achieved? So you've been, you left three weeks ago? Yes, three weeks ago. And I know, knowing you, you will have reflected a lot in those three weeks. Mm -hmm. What did you achieve from a career perspective? And where do you think it's taken you that time period from a personal perspective? I think the biggest achievement from, from my last experience is growing out of that I'm the youngest person in the room. The imposter syndrome is never going to leave, right? I mean, that affects the best of us. So I've learned to live with it. But it used to be so engulfing to the point that it created unnecessary stress. So I would say I feel more confident. I feel more confident about my strengths. I've become friends with my weaknesses. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, and now what it's done, it's bookended the last 10 years. And I feel like now I could do something else and marry all of the past experiences that I, I've had, you know, from Urban Outfitters to Selfridges to, to, to Soul House. You know, Nick, Nick was, was, was you know, as always, he's very intuitive. He said, why don't you start your own thing? And this is what I'm figuring out in this time. Do I want to do that or do I want to you know, take on another challenge? Um, I haven't lived in, 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 in America full time. New York feels like the next frontier. I think that will be very exciting. But I've already planned out, again, being quite a structured person, how I want to spend the rest of the year. You know, I'm, I'm doing the, the general management program at Harvard in fall. I don't think I've told you this, but, but I got excited. Accepted, so. Oh, I know you didn't tell me you got accepted. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it's fantastic. I'm, I'm excited because it's. I think it's going to be the perfect way for me to spend and re, uh, spend the rest of the year and, and recalibrate. But also, I want to start thinking about impact beyond just me. The last twenty years have been a project about me. I've started mentoring. And it happens so organically as well. Um, this young photographer from Singapore, um, super talented. His name is um, Hider Baharuddin. And he reached out to me and said, hey, would you mind being my mentor? And I said, well, I don't know if I know how. <laughs> I don't, but it, you know, it, it happened. But I have someone I can ask. I have someone I can ask. I have had very good mentors. So, <laughs> so I'm going to just mirror there. <laughs> tell us more about what you have achieved because you have achieved some fantastic things at Soho House I've seen them sure. yeah. tell us about some of the if you like um, tangible successes sure. okay um, so when I joined we relaunched the app so we really upgraded our digital capabilities right um, we had a bookings app before uh, but now on the app you can do so 33 different functions. That was a project um, in collaboration with the uh, CTO, Raj, Raj Dewan, incredibly talented. And that was meant to be a two, three year project and we compressed it 
to make sure we have that before we went public. Incredible. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I mean, it's by no means perfect, but knowing how long it takes to build something like that, and we managed to get it over the line, that that's a massive achievement. But we I would get- also say it's the, the functionality of it's great. As someone who's used it, being in a house, knowing who else is in that house, all sorts of little bits that add to the sense of community, but also the the way it's designed, which you have a big part of, it looks fantastic. It's a, it, it's a pleasurable experience, sure. almost indulgent to the, <laughs> to the extent that it feels it feels a bit special. It feels like picking up a really high high quality magazine or something like that. Yeah, well, the audience is a very discerning creative audience, so the digital product has to mirror that. The challenge we had with building a super app in a short period of time is that we really had to compress the test and learn. And, you know, anyone in, in, in product design, you know, knows to live and die by that. Um, that's a huge learning for us. Uh, if, we, if we were to do it all over again, we're probably, you know, we would have started with fewer features. Um, and we're getting really great feedback from, from the members and the platform is constantly upgrading. Um, but what the, what the app does is it helps remove friction from the member experience when you're in the houses. And then the second thing it does is it creates more brand touch points for you to feel closer to Soul House even when you're not in a physical space. So it's a really valuable tool um, as, far as, as far as the membership is concerned and, and the perception of value of that membership. So that's one. And the other, the other achievement is building an in-house creative team, which didn't exist before. Soul House is growing at a very, very fast rate. And it makes more sense to, you know, have all of that in-house. So they get, you get more value and also greater consistency in terms of the creative output. So we, we now have a full-fledged motion team. We have an editorial team. We have graphics team, events, partnerships, you know, the, the full suite that allows Soul House now to go out and, and, and really do whatever it wants to do. Um, and we have done that. You know, I'm really proud of the relaunch of Soul Home, which is our home interiors brand. You know, when I joined, you know, it was it wasn't doing too well. And, you know, working with an incredible, incredibly talented team of 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 people who have retail experience. Um, you know, I joined at a time where there were uh, new additions to the C-suite. Um, a lot of them came from a retail background. Um, and, and we turned that business around. And now it's, it's, it's a, val- a valuable, valuable part of So House. I'm really, really proud of that. And then we launched our skincare line, Soho Skin, which is, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of it because it's a vertical that I've not worked in before. The beauty space, you know, it's incredibly competitive. A lot of people in that space know exactly what they're doing. Um, I'm happy that we we managed to come up with a product that we are we're really, really proud of. Um, those are a few of the things that, that we managed to, to achieve, I would say. And of course, not to forget the challenge of making sense of a members club amidst a more 
inclusive world, right? Amidst, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, amidst Me Too, how do we create a more equitable club? You know, uh, the, the nature of a members club is that it means some people will be excluded. How do you make that as equitable as possible? Um, you know, we have programs where you know, we've got mentorship programs, mentorship uh, apprenticeship programs that create access points, other access points for you know, really talented creatives to be part of the community. And really they help make the, the club more exciting anyway. So you're not just running into the same people um, all the time. So in short, the five-year plan that, that was laid out for Soul House just got expedited. It got compressed in the, in the two years through, through the pandemic and, 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 and post-pandemic. Um, I think there's other things that people would say, and I know they've said to you, which you're not sharing, from an external perspective about the shift in some of the creative that's seen and has been noticed by a lot of people, and that that's to do with you and what, what you. value you added. And, I, and from a personal perspective, I feel like you're more comfortable with you I am. You've talked about how you want your driver to be more about the passion and the positive and the channeling your energy in that way moving forward. Where do you feel you're at at the moment? I feel like I'm exactly where I need to be. And I think that's a, it's a, very, it's a very big statement. I didn't think I would, I would occupy this space now. And part of it is having the breathing space to even recognize that. But the confidence and the comfort that I, I am experiencing now really stems from knowing that I have found my tribe. And it took a long time to recognize my voice, I would say, to then recognize it in others. Um, and they don't have to be people that you speak to every day. You know, Imran is a great example. I didn't think, I felt at, at one point you feel like, oh, your story is so unique. You feel like you're the only person going through this and you could not possibly imagine that someone else has experienced something similar to you. And that creates a very, it makes the world feel quite lonely, really. Mm. And then you recognize it in others and you go, wow, there are other people who've gone through this and it's incredible. Um, and the, the people that I'm surrounded by now, each of them has a piece of that, a piece of that puzzle. And I feel empowered to move forward and, and do what I do next because I won't be doing it on my own. I'll be doing it with this tribe. Of, of people and we want this tribe to grow. We wanna we want more people to feel a sense of belonging really. Mm. When we have an understanding of the pieces of the jigsaw that fit best around us, that gives us a sense of belonging to ourselves as well. But it takes time to know ourselves. And I I, I was listening to a podcast with um I think who was it? 
oh, oh, I can't remember her name now. And she was basically saying she looks back at her 20s and she would never want to go back to her 20s mm-hmm. because it's a painful time. It's a turbulent time. And I don't think we give enough credit to the fact that it is tough being in your 20s. And whether that's being a Singaporean living in London as someone who's queer, whether that's being, uh, I mean, I look at my daughter who's got severe alopecia and when she goes through her 20s, she's going to face very different challenges, both because of the time it is and who she is, but from that than I did. And But not everyone gets to their 30s and then feels this sense of, belonging and comfort and confidence and I think that's partly because we don't give ourselves the space to understand who we are and by the way I think it ebbs and flows this sense of confidence once you have it doesn't mean that you have it you know what I'd like to think is I've only made sense of my experience so far if I were to move to a new country I'm going to experience this all over again but the difference is I've recognized the tools that's going to help me demystify the experience. Yeah. Right. And I think it, that that's a great way of saying it. It's, it's recognized the tools. And I'm a big one for saying that we collect our own toolbox because something that works for you won't work for me. Something that works for me won't work for you. Something that works for you today might not work in a month's time, but to have that awareness that we are continually evolving and changing and there is an ebb and flow and that ebb and flow is okay. It's not resisting that ebb and flow. It's embracing it and understanding where we're at, where we're at on it and continually trying to rebalance the equilibrium in which we exist. But coming back to that point, that requires a little bit of space and we have to create that space for ourselves and be deliberate and intentional about doing that. And that's something you are, and you have always been, is you've done things with intention. You've reflected with intention. You've made moves with intention. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very much to your credit. So I love, I always love talking to you. I've loved talking to you today. Every single interaction I have, I enjoy with you. I come away feeling replenished and energized and fulfilled. And you you kind of make me want to go and do creative stuff. But anyway, I could continue talking to you all day. I've taken up enough of your time. I know that people will love listening to what you've had to say. And just thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for having me. It's, 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 and, and thank you for helping me out. Ever since I've known you, you've been, you know, that that guiding light. And, and and I don't say that, you know, lightly. I wish everyone has 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 a Fiona in their lives, um, because it does help make that journey a lot easier. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to FionaMurden.com or my social media handle is also Fiona Murden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It'd be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week.